We're continuing this morning in Mark uh, chapter 2, so it's on page 708 if you're using the Pew Bible. We're still in this part of the Gospel of Mark where Mark is showing us who Jesus is. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. He's introducing to him to us. And I'm uh, praying and continuing to pray that this series will help us all to encounter Jesus more deeply as Mark uh, presents him and as we see who he is and what he does. In this first chapter, in the first chapter, we saw Jesus, you know, entering onto the stage of history. And in chapter 2, we see his ministry begin to expand. We see it begin to deepen. And we see that the problem of opposition begins to come to the fore. We're beginning to see that Jesus is doing something new. His approach is different. His approach is fundamentally different from others who have, uh, the, from the religious milieu of his day. And so the setting of our passage this morning is his continuing ministry in the Galilee, near Capernaum, where he has been uh, in these early days of his earthly ministry. He's drawing great crowds. He's calling disciples to follow him, as we'll see. So read with me from Mark 2, starting in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, uh, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray with me. Father, now as we encounter your word, we do pray that you would speak to us. Help us, Jesus, to see you more clearly. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1962, I'm sorry, a man named Thomas Kuhn published a book. He was a scientist. The book was called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, in which he coined and introduced to the world this term, paradigm shift. Kuhn's, uh, he invented it to be applied in the hard sciences, so in math, astronomy, physics, to describe a shift in the thinking of the body of science. For him, the paradigm was the basic worldview belief of the scientific community. Therefore, the paradigm was settled. The paradigm was fixed. Everyone believed the paradigm. For instance, the paradigm of the scientific community, at least in Europe, was that the Earth was the center of the solar system until 1543 or so, when that paradigm was shifted by the writings of Copernicus, who proved that the Earth actually revolved around the sun. So this is the term that Kuhn used, and then, of course, in the, the, the term became much more familiar to us. In the 1990s, it became the phrase, paradigm shift, became sort of this buzzword to describe any kind of change, not just in the sciences, but any kind of change of deeply held and culturally shared beliefs. It's probably not accurate to use the term in this way. He would perhaps not like the way the paradigm has shifted, about his term paradigm shift. Um, But the point for us today is that Jesus is shifting the paradigm. 
In his teaching, Jesus is trying to challenge the fundamental, the basic worldview kinds of beliefs that his audience held about religion, about how to get to God. And some of these people who are very committed to these beliefs and hold them very tightly don't want their paradigm shifted. They don't want Jesus to change what they believe and what they think is the right way of understanding God and the world. So we saw last week that for the first time this begins to become a theme, that people are opposed human opposition to Jesus' person and his message. When he healed the paralyzed man who was lowered down through the roof, Jesus made the point explicitly clear that he, was, that he had the right, that he had the prerogative to forgive sins, which, of course, would have belonged only to God. It's a claim to do something that only God can do, according to the Old Testament. And so this made the religious leaders question in their hearts and conclude that his claim was blasphemy, that he was taking God's authority as his own. So last week was about this issue of forgiveness, where he begins to run into the Pharisees and their paradigm and begins to challenge it. And this week, we see that Jesus will take on their traditions and their views about fellowship, about what it means to be clean and unclean, and to fellowship with those who are excluded from the religious community of the day. And then in the next few weeks, we'll see that Jesus will challenge the religious elite about their uh, views of the Sabbath and what they believe was proper to do and not do. And Jesus will challenge their views about fasting, And what does it mean for them, for what does it mean that he and his disciples don't fast in the same ways that they always do? So Jesus is so effective in drawing a contrast between his teaching and the teaching of the religious leaders of his day that by the time of chapter 3, verse 6, they're plotting how to kill him. It's very clear to them that their views and his views cannot be reconciled. He's a threat to them. They're jealous of him, and he's trying to shift the paradigm. He's trying to tell them that they're wrong, that these things that they held so deeply and tightly about how to approach God is actually completely misguided and a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. And we have to think for a moment what it means that Jesus is really intentionally provoking them, the scribes and the Pharisees in this chapter, Jesus is not content to placate them or give in to their power. We see evidence that this was a justice issue for him, that the religious leaders had failed in their understanding of the Old Testament and what it really meant for them to be God's people and God's chosen people, uniquely so. And so Jesus came to demonstrate and to teach something very different. This is all connected with his teaching as we see in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him And he began to teach them. As we've seen, his primary activity is teaching. He's telling about the kingdom of God. He's announcing its arrival. And he's calling people to repent and believe, as he did from chapter 1, verse 15 and forward. So what's this difference? What's What's the paradigm shift that Jesus is trying to do here? What Jesus is teaching about the gospel is incompatible with the Pharisees and their scribes in their basic approach and orientation about how to have a relationship with God. 
and Tim Keller's uh, and many others, of course, have described this dynamic in terms of the universal problem of religion. Human religion, thus defined by them, Keller and others, is basically that religion is advice. And it takes a lot of different forms in order for someone to have a relationship with their deity, with their God, whatever, however the religion takes the form. But the, but the point is, in this definition, that, religious, that religion is about advice. It's about uh, you have to be like us as a part of this group. It's about working out some kind of internal piety so that you're, uh, so that you're worthy to be able to approach God. It's about some system of measurable external goodness. The greater the sacrifice you can make, the more God will be pleased with you. You know, all of these kinds of things are definitions, or in this paradigm, in this understanding, of what is a religion? What does a religion do? How can one be accepted by God? And so this is what the Pharisees and the scribes had made the worship of God at this point in Israel's history. They were the keeper of the traditions. They were the ones who were viewed as the most pious and holy by the people. They were the ones who studied the Old Testament laws backwards and forwards. They were the ones who memorized them and taught it to their children. Yet instead of seeing that the whole of the Old Testament is describing God's desire that people would serve him from the heart and with faith, They had multiplied rules and laws and external regulations. Far beyond the Old Testament, they had multiplied these laws out and made them the standards by which one could approach God. And so they had turned worship into religion. They had made it all about the rules. So Jesus comes with a new teaching and a new approach. Not new from the perspective of the Old Testament, of course, but new from the perspective of of the Pharisees and the people of the day. The gospel says, Jesus' announcement, you're accepted by God by faith, not according to what you've done. The gospel is the announcement of good news, not the pronouncement of advice that you must follow. The gospel tells us that we're accepted by God not on the basis of our own merit, but on the basis of Christ's merit. And Jesus isn't content the gospel would be lost to these false teachings of the Pharisees. And this is, of course, the tension that will drive the whole gospel story all the way to the cross, is this tension that Jesus is saying, your approach, Pharisees, scribes, religious leaders of the day, your approach is wrong. You have misunderstood what God has done. You've misunderstood and misread the Old Testament, and you've misunderstood who I am. And Jesus came to bring good news of freedom and peace and salvation and eternal life and God's love and how to be drawn into a relationship with him as it always has been of faith and trust from the heart. And the religious leaders of his day bring the advice of burdens and rules and traditions and self-righteousness and comparison and pride. And I'm spending a lot of time on this point here because I think this is, it's so foundational that we understand this is the problem between Jesus and the religious leaders. This is the paradigm that Jesus is trying to shift. This is something different going on in our belief system, in this, in this way of understanding it, than in any other 
religion of the world. And this background helps us to see what's really going on, of course, in our passage this morning. In the previous chapter, Jesus called four specific men to follow him, and here he adds another one. Verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. We don't get the bigger picture of the conversation. It's hard to know in what context Levi, or also um, this was Matthew, uh, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, it goes by both names. Uh, we don't know the context that Jesus had. Is this his only, only encounter with Jesus, or, is, or do they have some kind of other relationship? Did Jesus say a lot of things to him before he said, follow me? We just really don't know. The account is very simple. Um, Jesus' invitation is an imperative. It's a command. Follow me. Do this. And Levi stood up, and Levi followed him. And it's important that we note that, that this idea of following in Mark's gospel is always done by the disciples and the crowds. Opponents don't follow Jesus. They're opposed to him. And so the way that Mark uses this word really almost is a synonym for belief. To follow captures something of this idea of being a disciple, of not going your way, but going someone else's way, of one who gives up their own agenda and takes certain kinds of risks and bears a certain kind of cost. What's surprising and shocking and offensive, of course, to the religious leaders is that Jesus is welcoming a tax collector into his group. And, of course, maybe uh, we know something of the status of tax collectors in Jesus' day. They were universally despised by the common people. They were seen as traitors to their own people, collaborators with the pagan uh, evil Roman Empire. Uh, The way that it worked was that a tax collector... And they were also called tax farmers, actually. They would buy the ability to collect taxes. So they would pay the Romans the ability to collect the taxes in this region, and then they would have to collect the taxes in such a way that they would profit. Right? So, the, so the whole system is built on greed and corruption. Rome got its money, and the tax farmer had, didn't have a lot of accountability about what he could charge. He would charge whatever he would get, and he could line his own pockets with us. And many of them were uh, very wealthy, like we see in, in the example of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, who was a, a, a way-up-there kind of tax collector. So they were viewed as terrible people. They're morally corrupt. They're basically thieves. And they're empowered by the enemy. They're, they're traitors to their own people. And they're religiously cut off because they're working for the pagans. So, later Jewish traditions make these things maybe even more explicit. A Jew, this is a quote, a Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or a witness in court. He was expelled from the synagogue. He was a cause of disgrace for his family. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from a tax collector since the revenue from taxes was deemed robbery. Further, as in these later Jewish traditions, they were defining sinners. These were, the, these were people who were sinners, right? Gamblers, moneylenders, people who raced doves for sport. Not sure what that means exactly. 
people who trade on the Sabbath day, on the Sabbath year, thieves, the violent, shepherds, and of course, tax collectors. So if you looked up in the dictionary, what is a sinner, you would see the definition of a tax collector. And this idea of sinners wasn't just sinners. Really, it means more like the wicked. Who's wicked in our society? Well, it's these people, and tax collectors are a notable example. So into this background, then Jesus calls Levi, and Levi follows him. And from the opponent's perspective, it gets actually even worse in verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus goes over to Levi's house, most likely, and based on the tradition of the Pharisees then, this act of fellowship has made Jesus unclean, has defiled him religiously, and this was highly offensive to them as they observed it from the outside, because they have this tension with Jesus, right? Because they see what he's doing, that he's remarkable, and that he knows the law, and he understands it, and he's teaching it, and yet he's breaking all of their conventions about how to relate to the people around them. Table fellowship, of course, was an important act. It was an act of, of acceptance. It was an act of familiarity and close relationship. And so Jesus is doing something that they would never do. And part of their motivation was this idea that, that was their, their paradigm, in this sense, is holiness comes by separation. The way that you stay clean is that you stay away from things and people who are unclean. Now, we recognize that there's some wisdom in this and some precedent for it in the Old Testament. We can think of a lot of laws in the Old Testament that describe how Israel is supposed to be different from its neighbors. One of the foundational principles of the conquest of Canaan for the Israelites under Joshua, one of the problems that arises in the time of the judges when they didn't do this, was the command that God gave them to stay separate from the Canaanites. They weren't to make treaties with them. They were to drive them out of the land. They weren't to marry them. They weren't to adopt their practices. Israel was called to be different and not to follow in the ways of the Canaanites. That's one example. We see a lot of other examples that kind of illustrate the same thing. In the Proverbs, you read a lot about, about friendship and about the danger of being close friends with fools and how uh, bad company, keeping bad company is bad for you. Uh, that there's danger in associating with people who don't walk with God and don't share your beliefs. And we, of course, in our day could think of many uh, examples of people that we know who were led the wrong direction, who were led away from God by their friends or their spouses or their neighbors or, or whoever it was. So there are some good reasons why the Pharisees had something of this mentality of holiness by separation. But it's certainly not the whole story of the Old Testament, and it's not always the right application of the law either. Joshua's day was a particular era in which separation was vital for the spiritual health of the Israelites. But they found to their own hurt that they were led away from God by the pagan practices and idolatries of their neighbors. God had warned them about this particular issue in this particular time of their history, and they failed to heed that warning, and there were disastrous results. But positively, you know, if we, if we kind of do the other side of the coin, part of the purpose of separation 
was to be a living demonstration of the truth of God's existence through their holiness and their worship. The good conduct of Israel, their love for neighbor, was to be something that drew in people from the other nations to the worship of the true God. There was an evangelistic purpose. The Pharisees had had lost that completely. They had made this holiness by separation its own thing, a goal to achieve, and completely separated it from this idea that you see throughout the Old Testament that God wants to use His people and His temple and the greatness of Solomon's wisdom and all of these kinds of things to draw in people from other nations, that it wasn't an ethnic thing. But, that the, but by this time, the Pharisees had built so many rules around God's boundaries that their religion was hardly recognizable. A final piece of evidence to this point comes again from later Jewish traditions, which were based upon this mentality, this first century mentality. The traditions thought that the one who reads and studies the law, as the Pharisees and the scribes did, deserves God's favor. The one who reads and studies the law deserves God's favor and is righteous based upon their own merit. That is where the tradition went to. So again, this isn't what the Old Testament says. It's a wrong application of those Old Testament principles. So all of this brings into clear focus what's happening here. Verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' summary statement tells us that his purpose is not to prop up those who think they are righteous and think they can save themselves. He's not bringing religious advice. He's exposing a fundamental need, that people are sick because of sin, and they need a physician. And he's the physician. He's saying, I'm the physician. And it makes as much sense for him to ignore sinners in their sickness as it does for a doctor to ignore a patient who needs help, who's critically ill, and just to walk away and try to go and, hide and heal well people. And this, of course, doesn't mean that Jesus thinks that the Pharisees are well and not in need of a physician. Jesus is provoking them by his teaching and his actions, but he's not hitting them with both barrels at once. He's not pronouncing woes upon them yet. He will. That happens later in his ministry as this tension continues to build and rise. Jesus is defending his strategy of reaching out to the broken who, are, who, need, who know that they need the healing that he alone provides. And I think part of what's really significant here and part of what's the stumbling block is that we don't read that Jesus called these tax collectors and sinners to repentance first. It's not actually in there. We don't see the evidence that he said, I'll go over to your house if you already have repented. In Zacchaeus's case, it's clear that Jesus invites himself over to the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, before Zacchaeus even has a chance to repent. And if Jesus would have come pronouncing woes on these sinners, and if they would have then publicly repented, what would the Pharisees and the scribes have been upset about? They would have thought that he did the right thing. He's condemning the sinners. Oh, they repented? Well, okay, that's good. We don't maybe really believe it, but that's good. He's, he's, he's given it to them, right? These are the bad guys. But Jesus doesn't make his fellowship with these people 
based upon a precondition of their own doing. And this is the critical difference, isn't it? Jesus is expressing his love and concern for these religiously alienated people first. Grace precedes repentance. Grace comes first. There's nothing that anyone can do to deserve the grace of Jesus. And if indeed these tax collectors and sinners will repent and believe as Zacchaeus did, then they will receive the gift of salvation and new life. As Jesus said about Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. What does it mean for us this morning as we reflect on this passage? The gospel requires us to believe our own sickness. Reading your Bible and going to church doesn't make you well. Being a nice person doesn't make Jesus love you. Mark is showing us clearly that Jesus is moving graciously towards people. And that it's the broken and it's the humble. And it's those who know that they can't keep the standards. Those are the people who are, who are responding. Those are the people who are moved by his message, not the people who think that they don't need him. And of course, as we will see, the cross is the ultimate demonstration of this grace that has moved to a rebellious world first in love. And it's fundamental that each of us would understand that God has moved to us first in grace and mercy that he took the initiative, and that we're called then to a response. What do we do with this news? Repent and believe. Jesus comes as our physician, and so we, we ask, are you sick? Do you need him? It's the first, the basic foundation of our understanding of this paradigm shift that Jesus is teaching Second, we see the danger of self-righteousness and legalism. The religious leaders are blind to their sickness. They're blind to to their need. And they're scandalized, then, that Jesus doesn't keep their standards about fellowshipping with gross and yucky people. They think that they deserve God's love and that other people don't. And the church can be guilty of this kind of thing, too. And how we engage with unbelievers around us is really important and requires from us a lot of wisdom. We need to see the danger of being led down the wrong paths by our friends. And I don't mean this to sound harsh, but some of us might need a new set of friends. I don't know any of you particularly, but you might. We need to make the hard choice to follow Jesus more closely than following our friends if our friends aren't aren't leading us towards him or helping us or supportive or if they're critical of what we believe, that will impact us. So on the one hand, we need to recognize that. But on the other hand, Jesus shows us that we can move towards those who don't yet believe. And I think that some of us, and maybe more of us than those who need to change our friends, need to exercise our faith in Christ by building and maintaining friendships with those who right now are hostile to the things of God. And we need a lot of wisdom to do this, and we desperately need a sense of humility. We have to trust that God might grow our faith even as we do so. And we might feel, and we do, that we're increasingly outnumbered in our culture, 
and our beliefs are marginalized by those around us all the time. And we may continue to feel more and more out of step with our culture, but that's nothing new for the church. And it shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't expect the world to embrace our beliefs. We shouldn't expect unbelievers to act like believers. If it's really true that 60% of our county claims no religion at all, then we're, we're, we're in a minority already, very much so. And what is that, what is that, what's that challenge and what's the opportunity? The opportunity is to be a winsome representation of the love of Jesus to those around us, and it's not easy. It's not easy at all. The world has enough stereotypes about the church, and so we need to show that we really care, that we move towards others with a sense of expectation, that Jesus will help us, that Jesus will guide us, that he will meet with us, that he wants to use us to plant seeds and to bring others into the kingdom. And if we want to see that happen, I think this passage gives us this, this sense that we need to not worry about the stuff of religion. We need to concentrate on introducing our friends to the Savior, as indeed Mark is introducing him to us. Because the world already thinks that the church is all about religion, and people in our culture aren't really interested in a longer list of do's and don'ts. But Jesus is turning religion upside down, and he's calling us to see what he has done in the greatest demonstration, the greatest demonstration, the greatest possible demonstration of moving towards a rebellious world with love and with mercy. And so he came with news and not with advice, and so we come with news and not with advice. I need to be reminded of this and not focused on the secondary issues about sin and about how to talk to people about their own sin. And yes, there's absolutely a point to that. And we lose the gospel if we don't say, hey, you need a physician. And yet, we have to say, like, this is the physician. And he's the one who can fix you. It's not the church who can fix you. It's not a 12-step program. It's not something else. And he's come. And he's moved toward this world at great sacrifice and in the greatest demonstration of love. To all who would listen, to all who would repent and believe. And so then I ask you this morning, has Jesus shifted your religious paradigm? He comes with this amazing message, which is, the message is an invitation. Follow me. As he called Levi, he calls us to respond with faith and repentance and to follow him. Grace has come first to this world, and it's changed everything, hasn't it? Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you again for sending your Son. And Jesus, we thank you for coming and changing the way that we think and giving us faith when we didn't have it, giving us understanding that was lost to us about what it means to be in a relationship with you, what it means to know you, what it means that you would love us and come with mercy and grace. We do pray that you would give us wisdom, great wisdom, as we would represent that message of mercy and grace to those who are around us. Give us insight. Give us humility. Give us boldness. Lord, as your people, and help us to trust that you will use us to advance your kingdom. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.